Ah, the Brady Bunch. Well, good morning, everybody. It's good to be with you. I uh, have been looking forward to this for a long time and uh, just glad to be here. We're going to spend some time talking about making family work because that's what we want, right? You love people. You have relationships with people that matter to you, whether they be parents or siblings or children or a spouse. You want to make that work. You want love to work between you. Sometimes it's a little harder than we think it should be. Does anybody know why we put wedding rings on this finger? Huh? I mean, isn't that an odd question? You've maybe never thought about that ever in your life. That's just the way we do it. Every wedding you've ever been to, they put it on that finger, the ring finger. We don't put it on the ring finger on the right hand. We don't put it on the thumb. We don't put it on the pinky. Why do we put it on the ring finger? Well, there's an old adage, a very romantic notion that says that there's a vein that runs in that finger, only that finger, right up your arm and straight into your heart. It's not true. (laughs) But it sounds nice. And it communicates something that we want to believe about love, right? That it's important and it's special and it's unique. Uh, There's actually an ancient Chinese explanation for why we put wedding rings on this finger. And I actually like it. uh, There's a little finger play. So everybody play along with me this morning. Put your thumbs together like this. Put your pointer finger up like this. Yes, this is a little like that thing you did when you were a kid. Here's the church. Here's the steeple. Open the doors. Where's all the people? Across the street, there is a bar. Open the doors. There they are. (laughs) You guys didn't do it that way? It must be me. Okay, so, so put your knuckle, your middle finger knuckle together, and then your ring finger goes up, and your pinky goes up. I know it's a little hard to do. Hopefully you won't pull anything in the process here, but stay with me. Here's the ancient Chinese explanation for why we put wedding rings on the ring finger on the left hand. Thumbs, that represents you and your parents. You have a bond, connection, relationship with them, your family, as it should be, but as life happens, there's space. Right? You can put space there. Pointer finger, that's you and your siblings if you have them. Bonded, connected, space in that relationship. Pinky, jump down to that. That's you and your kids, bonded, connected. And if we do our job right as parents, they go away. I mean, there's space, right? I mean, they, they grow up. That's it. That's what I was looking for. That's, they, they grow up. Uh, yeah, and then there's that ring finger. And that's you and your spouse, bonded, connected. Go ahead, pull it apart. Can't get it apart, can you? If, if you do, you're double-jointed or something's wrong with you, but um, no, you can't get it apart. There's not supposed to be any space in that relationship, right? It's a covenantial, lifelong relationship. Well, that's a pretty cool little finger play. Helps make a nice point about the, uh, the priority in the, uh, of marriage. But they missed something in this explanation. In fact, they missed what makes it all work. And in a little while, I want to share with you what that is, because that quality is what empowers us to love well, to love the way we want to love. But if we don't have that quality, that attitude, if you will, then we really can't love like we want to love. So we're going to get there. We're going to come back to that. And I want to show you what that is. Perhaps we should love the way Christ loved us. Philippians chapter 2. Let me read those verses to you from the New Living Translation, beginning in verse 1. Is there any encouragement from belonging to Christ? Any comfort from His love? Any fellowship together in the Spirit? Are your hearts tender and compassionate? Then make me truly happy. This is Paul talking to the people there at, at, at Philippi. Make me truly happy by agreeing wholeheartedly with each other 
loving one another and working together with one mind and purpose. Yes, Paul, that's what we want. We want to love together. We want to work together. We want to have one mind and purpose. How do we do that? He continues, verse 3, don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Oh, oh, wait a minute. I have ambition. That's my goal is to impress others. Don't try to impress others. Be humble. Thinking of others as better than yourselves. Don't look out for only your own interests, but take an interest in others too. You should have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Well, what was his attitude? Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave it up. He gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. And when he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Therefore, God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name that is above all other names, that at the, at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. So do you want to love well? Do you want to do this thing that you desire? Do you want to love well? Paul says, take on the attitude of Christ. Be humble. Think of others first. Look out for their interests. Don't relish your power and your position and all the things that you have. You want to talk about power and position. Jesus had it all, right? Creator of the universe. He's got it all right in the palm of his hand. But he gave all that up. So he could empower us. So he could love us the way we needed to be loved. Don't. Hold on to your power and your position. Serve other people just like Jesus did. That's how you love well. Well, how do we do that? What is it that empowered Jesus to love us that way? And how can we take that on for ourselves? Be humble is what Paul says. That's the attitude and the quality that makes the difference in every relationship. Well, what is humility? Humility has two components to it. It has a vertical component and it has a horizontal component. The vertical has to do with us and God. The horizontal has to do with us and all the relationships here on earth. It's interesting, Jesus defines this for us, the vertical one, in in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5 when he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Poor in spirit does not mean that you think poorly of yourself. It does not mean you have a poor self-esteem. It means you think rightly about yourself. In other words, you're humble about who you are. You're not spiritually proud. You're somebody that stands before God and understands he is God and you are not. And you get that. You can still think well of who you are. You can still understand you're a person of worth and value. It's not about worth and value. It's about understanding who you are in light of who God is. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Charles Bridges says that pride, opposite of humility, is contending for supremacy with God. Listen to that. It's where you stand toe-to-toe with God and say, yeah, yeah, I don't need you. I got this. If we were to put pride in the everyday vernacular, that's what it would be. I got this. I'm self-sufficient. I'm independent of you, God. I'm capable of handling this all on my own. But humility says, oh man, I so don't got this. I am not self-sufficient. I can't handle this all on my own. Adam and Eve is a pretty good example of that. They start out in humility, in relationship with God. He is God. They are not. They know who they are. They think rightly about themselves. They're not thinking poorly of themselves. They're thinking rightly about themselves. And they're dependent on him and his 
uh, his ways, his boundaries, the rules that he has established. And they live in accordance with those things until the day pride enters and pride says, oh, yeah, I think we got this. You know that one rule you have? Nah, I think we see it differently. We can be independent of you. We're now self-sufficient. God, we don't need you anymore. And everything changes. Everything changes. That's the vertical component of humility. There's a horizontal aspect of humility. Jesus also talks about this. This is the language of love your neighbor as yourself in the New Testament. But if we don't get this right, if pride enters into the equation, it too changes our horizontal relationships. There's a story in uh, Mark chapter 10 where James and John, two of the disciples that are following Jesus, are starting to have a little ruckus with one another. You see, they're looking for position and power. Their idea of Jesus and what he's going to do in the Messiah is that the Messiah, Jesus, is going to come and set up this earthly kingdom. And man, is he going to be in charge of everything. He's going to right all the wrongs. The nation of Israel is going to be restored. We're going to squash the Romans. We're going to squash anybody who gets in our way. And we're going to be the top dog in the universe. And I want to be your right-hand guy and your left-hand guy. And they start having this little battle, James and John, over who could be in the right-hand number two guy and the number three guy in the left-hand. And all of a sudden, the other 10 uh, disciples are noticing this thing, and they get indignant. They get angry with James and John, because you can imagine them going, oh, rats, I wanted to be the number two guy. And they're all battling for position with one another. And Jesus says, no, wait a minute, wait a minute. That's not the way my kingdom works. Whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be the slave. For even the Son of Man, even I, did not come to be served, but to serve other people. Do you want to talk about getting the horizontal relationships right? You look out for their interests above your own. True greatness, Jesus says. He totally redefines greatness in their eyes. They're thinking power and position. He says, no, no, no. True greatness is serving others. Why? For the glory of God, not your own personal glory. Be humble. Think of others first. Don't use your power and position for yourself. Use it for other people. If the vertical pride is contending for supremacy with God, horizontal pride makes us contend for supremacy with one another. I want to be number two. I want to be number three. The rest of you guys are number four. I don't want to be number four. I want to be number three. I want to be number two. We're now contending for supremacy with those around us. When pride enters our relationships, it puts us against one another. And Jesus says, that's not what you do. You serve other people. You put their interests above your interests. Now notice, when this triangle behind me is is working properly, when the vertical humility is there and the horizontal humility is there, all of our relationships are rightly ordered. And we're now able to walk out and love the way we're called to love. We're able to love the way Jesus has loved us. Things just go better When this is ordered the way it was meant to be. But anytime pride enters either the vertical or the horizontal, things go wrong. See, pride and humility dramatically impact relationships very differently. Let's take a little closer look at this. 1 Peter chapter 5 verse 5 has this very interesting little passage. And we're going to see that the core of this passage is repeated throughout the Bible. It is clearly something God wants us to understand. All right, now watch this. Clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. Let's just pause for a second there. Is that horizontal or is that vertical? 
The writer Peter is talking to leaders in a church and he's talking specifically to the people who are following their leadership. And he's saying, now here's how you do business together. Now notice this. Here's the way we're going to structure authority in the church. I want all of you, leaders and followers of leaders, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. This is a horizontal passage. And Peter's going to explain, this is why I want you to be humble towards one another because... Now, if you're like me, you pause at that point and you go, oh, this must be, this is a horizontal situation. He must give a horizontal answer to why we need to live this way in relationship with one another. But he doesn't go horizontal, he goes vertical. Clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God, he goes vertical, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. The implication here is what works in your vertical relationship with God is also going to work in your horizontal relationships with one another. And if you want to get things ordered, you need to understand who you are. You need to understand how God has created life and relationships to work best. And if you get this right, things are going to go well for you. There's a principle. We're created in the image of God. And so what happens vertically with him is also going to work horizontally with one another. So here's the thing I want you to understand. God opposes the proud. But he gives grace to the humble. What in the world does that mean? Let me tell you, this, this little phrase is repeated in multiple ways in various, uh, uh, you know, slight variations all throughout scripture over and over and over again. It is a fundamental truth about relationships. Let me just give you a quick little sampling of some of the scriptures. James chapter four, verse six says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So submit yourselves then to God. There's a vertical uh, interpretation or application of that particular. Submit yourselves to God. Think rightly about yourselves. He's God, you're not. So you need to submit to him, surrender to him. Philippians 2 that we just read about Christ said that this principle also applied in his life. He humbled himself and became obedient to death. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name above all names. He gave him grace. The Old Testament, Proverbs chapter 3 says, God mocks proud mockers. Hey, you think you're better than everybody else? God's going to mock you, but he gives grace to the humble. Proverbs chapter 11 says, pride leads to disgrace, but with humility comes wisdom. Proverbs 29 says, a man's pride will bring him low, but a humble spirit will obtain honor. Micah in the Old Testament is summing up a number of prophets, Amos, Isaiah, and he's saying, look, what does the Lord require of you? How does he want you to live in relationship with him? Well, it's pretty clear. Do three things. Love justice. Love what's right. Stand up for what's right. Act with mercy. Love mercy. Be merciful to other people. And then walk humbly with your God. It's, if you want to walk with God, you come to him initially in faith and say, God, I so don't got this. I need you. Our initial commitment to Christ is really about owning the fact that we have sin in our life and he is a holy God and we can't do anything about that. It's not in our power to do anything about my sin. I don't got this. I'm falling on your grace, Lord, to do something about what I can't deal with. We come to him in humility. We walk with him in humility. And someday when Jesus comes again, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. In other words, everybody's going to bow before the Lord at some point. And you can either get there on your own or he'll make it happen. But any way you cut it, humility is where we're going to end up. You might as well make it your choice instead of his, if you know what I mean, right? We come to this humility thing marks 
our walk and our relationship with God. Now listen to this. The vertical is true, so the horizontal is true. So here is this paradox embedded in this little passage. God opposes the proud. We often think about humility. I'm getting a little ahead of myself. Let me pause for a second. We often think of humility as a virtue that everybody should do, and it's a really nice thing. And we just see it as contained within the person. What I want you to get this morning is the relational impact of humility and how it dramatically helps us love one another how it changes the very nature of the relationship that you're trying to walk out. So notice the paradox here. If we bow humility before God, he lifts. God gives grace to the humble. But if we stand before him in pride, he opposes. Again, lots of scripture around this. Matthew chapter 23, Jesus is confronting the Pharisees. These are prideful people. They walk around. They love their positions. They love their power. They love being in charge. And they love being the center of attention. And Jesus looks at them and says, man, don't be like them. For whoever exalts himself will be humbled. There it is again. There's the same principle, right? God opposes the proud. But Jesus says, whoever humbles himself will be exalted, but he has grace for the humble. You lift yourself up, he's going to knock you down. Because you don't rightly belong there. Your relationships with him are not ordered. And he won't let you stand before him in that way. Adam and Eve in the garden. Everything is fine. Everything is hunky-dory. We're getting along with God. Relationship is good. And all of a sudden, we don't need you, God. We can do what we want in self-sufficiency. We're going to make a choice you don't want us to make. And what does God do? He opposes them. Everybody out. It's pretty obvious, right? You can't live there. So like there's a humility paradox. We bow, he lifts. There's a pride paradox. We lift ourselves. He's going to break us down. It's pretty simple. It's pretty direct. Anyone, Proverbs 16, 5 says, everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured, he will not go unpunished, it says. Adam and Eve is one good example of that. There's another guy named David in the Old Testament who was a, you know, he watched sheep for crying out loud and Israel wanted a king and they, and everybody starts looking for who's the best person to be king. And God says, no, 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 we're going to pick a very humble person to be king. Why? Because I like people who walk with me in humility. We can do business together. I will, I will lift them. I will uh, hold them up. I will give them grace for their, for their walk because they are dependent in relationship upon me. So David gets to be king. This humble man becomes king. And then once he's in charge of everything, after a few years, he starts looking around going, man, I like being in charge. This is kind of fun. I think I'm going to make my own rules. And he takes a woman named Bathsheba that he's not married to. He has an affair with her. And then he kills her husband, Uriah, to get away with it, to hide it. She's pregnant. Oh no, what am I going to do? So David, the humble man in pride, starts doing all kinds of things. So what does God do? He opposes him. He sends a guy named Nathan, a, a spokesperson for God, a prophet to God, uh, confronts David and says, you can't do this. And David recognizes his sin and is broken and contrite and apologizes And is there consequence for what happens? Absolutely. The child dies. But his brokenness is real. And what does God do? Because he humbles himself again, God 
restores him to the throne, and continues to walk with him over time. David is a perfect example of humility that became pride that became humility again. There's another guy in the New Testament. His name is Saul when we first meet him, and he's walking around going, oh, I so got this. All you Christians, you're wrong. This teaching you're trying to, that's, that's wrong. That's not what God wants. We have the truth. You don't. And he's throwing people in jail left and right, and he's standing there while people are being murdered because of their faith in Christ. And so what does God do to this guy named Saul? He opposes him on this road called Damascus and he blinds him and he gets his attention and for three days he can't see anything and Saul is now listening for the very first time instead of being prideful he is listening and all of a sudden he's got God's attention or God's got his attention and Saul becomes Paul He gets a new name, he gets a new job, and now he's walking with God in humility, not in pride. And he can hear what God has him to say. He can understand the things that God is trying to teach him. And all of a sudden, we have most of the New Testament by this guy named Paul. Story after story after story in Scripture basically comes down to this very simple principle. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. If we bow ourselves before him, he has grace for us. But if we walk around in pride, he will oppose us at every turn. Now here's the thing. Because what works vertically also works horizontally, get this. Here's the connection I want you to make about your marriage and your family relationships. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And are you ready for this? And so do spouses. And so do children. And so do bosses and employees and stockholders and the general population, friends, neighbors. Every level of society, this principle works exactly the same. It works in human relationships, whether it be in a, in a place of employment. You ever had a boss who is arrogant? And everybody's just like, oh, I'm so sick of this guy. He never listens to anybody. He's got all the right answers. He doesn't pay attention. He's not cooperative. He's looking out for himself. He's always seeking the glory. He takes all the credit for everything. What happens at the water cooler? Man, people just hate this guy. They're not loyal to him at all. They're just kind of going along because they want a paycheck. But nobody really values him or that relationship. It works in a place of employment. It works in politics. Can we just think about that one for a minute? You ever known anybody who was arrogant in politics? No names, please, all right? What happens inside you when those people get on TV and you just go, oh, I'm so sick of this guy. How about somebody who gets caught in politics? They get caught stealing or doing something inappropriate. And they go on TV and they blame shift and, and, and they point fingers and they go, no, it wasn't me. I don't know what you guys are talking about. I deserve the da, 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 da. And in that arrogance, you go, get them out. See, that's your opposition to their pride. But what if they get caught and they're like, and they're like David and they go, oh man, I was wrong. I blew it. I'm so sorry. I'm not worthy of this job. Do you have a little different attitude? Does it soften your heart a little bit? Do you find yourself going... Okay, right, we need to hold him accountable, but maybe we cut him a break. That's grace in response to their humility. Anybody in here ever have a child with a little bit of entitlement? Like, 
you know, no, dad, the ding on the car was not my fault. It's not my fault, dad. It's not my fault. I can't get to school in the morning. It's not my fault. It's not my fault. I can't get the trash out. It's not my fault. I don't know, you know, somebody else pointing fingers. What does that do to you as a parent? Maybe you have the same reaction I do as a parent. I go, oh, okay, you know, I'll do it for you. You No, that's not what happens. You rise up on your toes a little bit. Don't you get a little firmer and you talk a little sterner and you get, you do this with your hand, you know, and you, you, what happens in you? You're going to oppose that pride in them to say, look, 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 that's not the way the world works. It doesn't revolve around you. And I want you to get this right. That's your opposition rising up in you. But what if you have a child who goes, oh, I'm sorry, I blew it. I'm sorry. I'm going to do better. You, you work with that. You love that. You come alongside that, right? All right. I'm with you. I'm, I'm here. And you soften. See, this works in every level of society. Let's talk about marriage just for a minute. That's a very intimate relationship. This dramatically affects every marriage relationship. You can learn communication skills. For years, I taught couples communication and conflict resolution skills. And some couples would use it and some couples wouldn't. And I couldn't figure out the difference. Some couples were good at this. Like, you know, you learn this stuff in your business management skills training. And and you learn it at home. And you practice with your wife. And we're standing there and Ron's helping us learn how to do this. And they walk out of the room and they never use it. Why? I couldn't figure out the difference. And then I realized, ah, yeah, pride blinds you to you. And you don't notice your part. You never take responsibility for you. You're always blame shifting. You're always finding what's wrong with the other people. You're defensive about you and holding them accountable for who they are. And you don't do what you know how to do. Pride gets in the way. It's one of the amazing things about pride in relationships You don't even notice your part. Let me illustrate it this way. Let me give you four little snapshots of my life, okay, of my marriage. Today we've been married 31 years. Uh, January will come up on year 32. In year one, we had to learn how to sleep in the same bed together, right? That's one of those things I'd never done before, she'd never done before. Anybody who's ever been married, you get this, right? You have to share space in this bed. And maybe you're like us, we had different sleep habits. My wife is a cocooner. You know, I don't know how she does this physically. I can't still to this day, don't understand how she somehow does this thing. And when she's all done, the covers are tucked in and she is nice and cocooned into this warm little space where she's going to sleep. Yeah, some of you are smiling. That's exactly you, right? And I'm one of those guys where one leg's hanging off the side and one, you know, one sheet over me and I just don't need that many covers. And she's got all these blankets, right? Totally different. And how we sleep together. We're trying to figure this out. And so early on, those first few weeks, she, I would wake up at 3 o'clock in the morning freezing because there was no covers available to me because she had cocooned herself and everything was on her side of the bed. And so I remember waking up at 3 a.m. thinking, my goodness, she is so selfish. I married a selfish woman. So I did the only thing that made sense to me at that point in time. I'm embarrassed to say, but I would just kind of gently reach over, grab a hold of the covers, and then yank them over like this. And of course, it would just go, she's good, she's choking. Then I'd lay there real still like, you know, I'm asleep, like nothing's going on, like nothing happened. And if she's going, what, 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 like I'm asleep, so it wasn't my fault, you know. Question, what did Ron learn about Nan? I learned she was selfish. What did Ron learn about Ron? Nothing. Snapshot number two, it's now year 10 in our marriage. The scenario is this, my car's in the shop, she's going to drive me to work, 
I'm in the passenger seat. She's going to drop me off. Then she's going to take kids to school and go on her way. We get about two blocks down the road, and I notice she's a little nervous. Like, you know, you could just read body language. Like, I can just tell something's weighing on her, you know. I said, hey, what's, what's going on? Something under your mind? She goes, uh, no. Yeah, I know what that means, right? So I pressed her. No, no, no. Tell me. What, what, uh, what's going on? Well, she took a deep breath, and she told me. She knew I was in the passenger seat, but she knew I was going to drive. Turn here. Once you get in the right lane. You know, this time of day, the traffic's a little better if you go left instead of going straight. You know, it's going to be a... Would you get around this guy? Like, we want to get there. Can we hurry up, please? What are you doing? She knew I was going to drive. And she's already anxious, anticipating all of the directions that are coming her way. Question, what did Ron learn about Ron? Well... I didn't really feel comfortable with that. I mean, I was well aware that that was like, huh, that's not a good thing in me. If I understand Ephesians 5 right, my job is to make my wife be more instead of less. And in that moment, I'm making her less. So I need to work on that. Did I learn anything else about Ron? Nope. Snapshot number three. It's now year 14. I'm in graduate school studying marriage and family therapy, which meant of course, that I knew everything. Only my wife didn't know that I knew everything, so I had to help her with this. (laughs) So the scenario on that occasion was I'm in the living room reading a book, doing studying for something, and she walks in a long day, teaching school, kindergarten, uh, walks in, we say hello to one another, she goes into the kitchen, start trying to work on dinner a little bit, and she's telling me about her day. She's talking in the kitchen, I'm in the living room. She's telling me about the day, and they had the parent come in who was angry, and they had to call the principal, and it was a big mess. And from the other room, I start giving her advice. Oh, honey, oh, gosh, you know, when you have an angry parent, and one, next time, once you try this great communication skill that I learned just last week, I think you'll find things go a whole lot better. Funny little thing happened. She, she got curt, you know, stop talking, pots and pans start going, in the other room and I'm going there's that selfish thing again in her I mean here I am giving advice people pay good money for this she's getting it for free and (laughs) what did Ron learn about Ron not much you're 20 We've just been to Oklahoma City. My family, my extended brothers and sisters have kind of, we've all descended on Oklahoma City where my parents lived at the time. We had Thanksgiving, three or four days spent together and uh, everybody's in one house and you know how that goes. And and, uh, we're now in the car, in the minivan, driving back to Amarillo where we lived at the time and I'm driving and Nan's in the passenger seat and the kids are in the back and I'm just talking because I am reflecting on everything I've noticed over the last three or four days and I just can't believe, and I'm just overflowing. Did you notice what happened? You know, when my brother started telling that story, my sister wasn't even there when the story happened, but she corrected him on one of those details. Like it was, he said it was Tuesday and she said, no, wasn't that Monday? And it's like, that's not even the point of the story, Charlie. Why are you even bringing that up? Like that's irrelevant. But no, she feels the need to jump in there and tell him that it was Monday instead of Tuesday. And then my mom, when we were playing that board game and cards, you know, like she was coaching me all the time because I was on her team and we were losing and it was my fault. So she's always telling me what to do and why didn't I think strategy, Ron, instead of playing that card? I mean, and I was like, what's the point? We're just trying to have fun here. It's supposed to be fun anyway. I don't know why we have to win everything. And I'm just talking as fast as I can talk about all these observations I've made about my family the last three or four days. And then I say to my wife, have you ever noticed that before? And I get out of the corner of my eye one of these responses. 
I've been telling you this for 20 years. And I'm like, 20 years? Really? What do you, what do you mean 20 years? Really? Is this who we are? Yes, this is who we are. Question. What did Ron learn about Ron? Well, I began to reflect and reminisce and I realized, you know, I come about this naturally. This is just kind of this thing that I grew up with. It's kind of how we do family in our family. And then I began to realize it's not fun on the receiving end. And I've been doing this to my wife for 20 years. When I labeled her selfish in the bed and I felt entitled to be able to yank on the covers and I had nothing to do. I didn't, there was anything wrong there about me at all. It was all about her. And at year 10, when we were driving and I made her anxious, I was correcting her. Again, I feel this ability to correct her and let her know when she's not doing something right or she should think about it differently or take a different approach in year 14 when she had the problem with the teacher. And this whole time, it's been my pride that's seeded into me who I am in every one of those circumstances. I've been doing this to her for 20 years. And I never saw it before because pride blinds you to you. But humility says, look in the mirror. Quit being focused on the other person. You want to be empowered to love, Ron? Deal with you. God opposes the proud and so do spouses. Every time I tried to correct my wife and tell her what to do, she opposed me. And we would have arguments and we would just go round and round and round. The principle is there. What works vertically works horizontally in every life circumstance. Pride makes us set against one another in work relationships, in politics, in parenting. And it's every situation that you can think of. But humility says, no, it de-escalates the conflict because instead of focusing on them, you're dealing with you. It lowers your defenses and it makes them more patient with you. It invites cooperation and flexibility between the two of you. It makes forgiveness more likely. And all of a sudden, you're empowered to love the way you want to love. Let's go back to this because here's the secret, right? We've got to figure out what makes this thing work. Everybody put your fingers together, middle ring finger and put the pinky up there. Okay, because here's what I want you to see. What makes this whole thing work is that one finger that we hadn't talked about yet. It's that finger that's bent. You see, that has bowed the knee of humility. That middle finger has bowed the knee of humility vertically before God, first and foremost, and secondarily before the spouse that we're talking about here today. But look what happens. If you stand up in pride, look what happens You now have a gap in that ring finger that wasn't there before. It it makes relationships fragile. But here's the cool thing about humility. You can reverse the process. You can go right back into humility again, and then that ring finger gets solid. It strengthens the relationship because you dealt with you. Now, here's a little task for all the married couples in the room today. At some point today, take one of your hands and one of their hands and see if you can pull this off. You're going to have to talk a little bit and you're going to have to coordinate a little bit. You're going to have to work with each other. And one of you is going to start doing the, you know, the, the finger war. You know, bow that knee, bow that knee. No, 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 no. It's not your job to bow their knee. You bow your knee. And when they bow their knee, then together we have a relationship that's strong. Every level of society. This dramatically affects our relationships. 
Tonight we're going to be talking about blended families and focusing on that a little bit. But here's another quick illustration of just pride and humility in a blended family situation. One of the, one of the things that um, I commonly find when we have um, a parent and step-parent situation where, uh, where the step-parent is also a biological parent. So maybe they have raised their kids. Maybe their kids are little, you know, older teenagers or maybe they're in their 20s or 30s. And now you have stepchildren that are younger. Well, you had success as a biological parent with your kids. And so you go about, understandably so, parenting your stepchildren the same way you parented your biological children. Well, guess what? One of the principal rules of step-parenting is it's a very different relationship. It has a very different nature to that relationship. And if you apply the same principles that worked for you as a biological parent, as a step-parent, it may backfire on you in a very big way. But a prideful, stubborn person will say, but wait, Ron, it worked. I need to just keep banging my head against that wall. It must be the kid. It must be the kid. It must be my spouse. It must be somebody else. It couldn't possibly be me. And if we could just get that step-parent to back up and go, wait a minute, there's some different principles that apply. When it comes to parenting and step-parenting in a blended family situation, we're going to teach those tonight, by the way. And when you get those and you realize, oh, because of those different dynamics, I need to take a different approach. But a softened heart will say, yes, I need to deal with me. But a prideful heart will say, it can't be about me. And even though they have the right answer in that moment, they won't apply it. Because pride won't let you. Okay, so you got the principle, right? So let's talk about how you put on humility. How do we clothe ourselves with humility? If it's that important, if it's that dramatic in terms of an impact on relationships, how do we do that? I love the language of 1 Peter 5, 5. Clothe yourselves. One translation says, dress yourselves. Well, you know what? It's just like this morning when you got up and you went to the closet and you pulled out some clothes and you decided what you were going to put on. You get to choose to put on humility. It's not something you either have or you don't have. It's something you choose to put on. And one of the ways you do that, let's talk about five ways. Number one is take credit. Take credit, but don't seek the glory. Don't seek the glory. Our world today is all about boasting. It's all about a nice pic that you put on Facebook or Instagram or whatever, Snapchat or whatever it is, right? It's all about bumping your chest and saying, yeah, me, yeah, me. We sing, watch me, watch me, watch me, watch me, right? All the songs are, we want to glorify self. Don't do that. If you did something right, you did something good, somebody says, man, good job, thumbs up, take credit. Thank you. I appreciate that. But then deflect the glory. Then just immediately say, you know what? And I just appreciate God for giving me the skills and talents and ability to educate, whatever it is, right, that just allowed me to do what I do, to be here in this place, to make that happen. I'm just really grateful for God. Say those words out loud. On the football field, they do it and they point up to God, right? Give a little glory to God in that moment. We can do the same thing one-on-one, daily, in interaction, wherever it is that we are. Do we do that for other people's benefit? Yeah, they may benefit from that in some way, but you really do it for you. That's a clothing yourself with humility moment. Number two, serve others. That's what Jesus did. You need to do that. Step outside yourself and do something nice for somebody else. Why? Because it reminds you, you think rightly about yourself and about them. And it's not about you. You count them as more significant than yourself. And especially be kind to strangers and people who can never pay you back. And especially do kind things when no one is watching. There's no glory in it at all. Nobody's ever going to know. That is the perfect time to step up and serve somebody. Number three, have the courage to look in the mirror 
have the courage to look in the mirror. I got to tell you, at year 20, that was a very depressing time for me when I began to realize all that attitude that had been in my heart the whole time, the whole time, and how it poured out in moment and conversation and disagreement and conflict and uh, uh, many aspects of our marriage relationship the whole time. It was me running on pride. It was a hard occasion to sit and look deeply in the mirror at me and go, that's me. I got to do something about this. Finding that courage, by the way, leads to number four, because then you're willing to take the log out of your own eye. What do I mean by that? In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus, again, this whole principle we've been talking about is wrapped up in this little passage in Matthew chapter 7, where Jesus says, don't, don't look at others with condemnation and judgment, because they're going to just return that on you. Notice, when you do that, when you stand up in pride, they're going to oppose you, and they're going to condemn you, and now you've got this little negative cycle going on. This happens in marriage all the time. I criticize you, you oppose and criticize me, and I get defensive back towards you, and then you feel uncared for, like I'm not listening to you, and here we go. Don't do that, Jesus says. Because what you're doing in that moment, he says, you're noticed about the little speck in their eye. See, that's what pride does. I don't see me, I only see the little speck in your eye. And so Jesus says, the solution to this is take the log. You, you can't even see, you got this big log in your eye. You're so focused on them. Would you deal with you first? Take the log out of your eye. It's like when you get on an airplane and they give you the directions of, you know, in case there's turbulence, what are the directions? If an oxygen mask drops, right, and you're traveling with a companion or a child, what are you supposed to to do. Put the mask on them first. No, 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 no. You put the mask on you first. Well, why would you do that? You want to help this person that you care about, right? But if you don't take care of you, you can't be an asset to them. Same principle. Jesus says, take the log out of your eye. Deal with you first. That orders your relationships. It puts your heart in the right place. And it's probably going to soften their heart towards you and your heart back towards them. And now things take a different path. Things get better at that point. And then number five, get the vertical right. This is for all of us. We got to get the vertical right. Which means we got to continually come back to the foot of the cross and remember who God is and who we're not. And how much we need him and depend on him. And how grateful we are to him for what he has given up for us. Worship corporately like we're doing today? Yes, absolutely. But also worship just day to day, moment to moment. Being reminded of who God is. And thinking rightly about yourself. Let me just close with this. Um, At that 20 year mark, when I started looking deeply into the mirror and thinking about who I was. It was a hard time. It was a depressing time. It was a sad time for me. And it began to open some doors to some conversations my wife and I needed to have. And we sat with a counselor one day and it became very, very clear to me how prideful I had been. And that night, sitting at home, I came to my wife and I said, I don't know how it happened. But it's true. And I'm so sorry. When did it become about me? If you ask my wife today, she will tell you that's the moment she knew she got her husband back. Me just being broken and contrite and finally figuring out that I needed to deal with me first, all of a sudden softened her heart and she had grace. And there was forgiveness. And there was a moment of restoration. And it's made a huge difference in the path of our marriage. It's not always fun, this humility thing. And as a matter of fact, it's really hard. 
But vertically and horizontally, it's the most powerful thing, powerful choice you can make. Let's pray. God in heaven, thank you so much for your great love for us and for the way that you continually have patience for us while we try to figure out what it is that you want us to do. Would you please help us to be more like Christ, to take on the attitude that he had, that he has, that empowers him to love us. Would you help us to be like that so we can love you and love one another? In his name we pray, amen. Can we thank Ron for being here today? Thank you, Ron. Well, if you are interested, Ron uh, has books on parenting, books on marriage, and right across from our fireplace on the atrium is a place you can uh, get some of the books that Ron brought with. Uh, secondly, if you're interested in the workshop tonight, feel free to come tonight. You can look in the program or on our website to get the information about that. We'd love to have you join us and bring your questions. Uh, you can always start your questions with, I have a friend who uh, has an issue with this, and Ron would be delighted to help work with the really challenging relationships related to that. This begins sort of a launch of a brand new series that starts next week called Get a Clue. We're going to be addressing marriage, family, parenting, family of origin in a new series using the board game Clue. How do we get a clue about relationships in the next seven weeks? So if you want to dig into your own relationships, figure out how to make your marriage better, your parenting better, your connection with your own parents better, we're going to be exploring that for the ne- next seven weeks together. We invite you to be part of that with Get a Clue. So join us out uh, across the fireplace for some books or join us tonight or we'll see you all next week. Thanks for being here.